0: From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with Pastor Todd Stanley. Hey, everybody. Okay, so I want to start off with some controversy. Okay. (laughs) Um... The American Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, has voted to include non-binary or genderqueer in their membership demographics. So I think what this means is when you apply to be a member of PCUSA, you can list yourself as male, female, or, and they've added the right, third option. Right, right, them, they. Yes, so does this mean that they, PCUSA, are expressing agreement with the tenets of gender ideology? Um, and then maybe as a second question, what is the purpose in having high standards of leadership? Because what I do know about the PCA and the PCUSA, et cetera, is that they seem to have high, higher than normal standards of leadership. Like there's a lot more hoops to jump through if you wanna become a senior pastor in that organization. Okay. Um, and so so what's the point of having high standards if you're going to allow pathology in through the back door or if you're going to allow it to sprout up through the congregation? So. The second question may become moot if the first, if the answer to the first question is that they're not actually agreeing with gender ideology, hmm. but I want to hear your take on this. Well, uh, not being a part of that denomination, I, I,
1: I can't definitively speak, but I, you know, I do know that there has been a trend in a movement for a long time, uh, in, in the PC uh, toward, uh, you know, um, Affirming same sex uh, couples, affirming same sex attracted uh, and ordaining same sex attracted ministers, all of those kinds of things. So, this is not a new trend for them. So, my guess would be that the short answer to the first question is yes, that they are aligning yeah, with yeah. and affirming uh, those things. And there's a whole huge conversation to be had around that. Uh, in fact, just recently, Uh, Just this last week, actually, I was at LCBC uh, out in Lancaster County, out in the eastern part of Pennsylvania for a one-day event and they call All Access, Uh, and one of the sessions that I attended there was on having difficult conversations around sexuality, and they unpacked a lot of this stuff and did a really, really good job and a really... Even-handed job as far as presenting both sides of the argument and and of course why they landed on one side and not the other and but uh, they did a really good job with that and these are questions that the church is going to have to wrestle with uh, no matter how no no matter where you're at or how small your church is you're going to have to wrestle with these questions uh, if there are well so Gen is it Gen Z yeah twenty percent. Of Gen Z, identify as LGBTQ. Wow. Yeah, twenty percent. Um, my guess would be in Gen Gen Alpha, which would be younger than that. Uh, there's no There's no information on that yet, but my guess would be that the number will be even higher there um, because of the 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 cultural pressure that's applied in that direction and all. It's yeah, so, um, so it's a huge question for the church. We're gonna have to wrestle with it uh and so uh i'm kind of getting off track there let's get back to the PCUSA. so the short answer to question one yes they are affirming it the answer to question two uh would be that you know historically right they have really uh been high on education there are a lot of hoops to jump through to to be a, a, a in pastoral leadership there um that doesn't become less important because they agree with an ideology that we would disagree with. What that means is that they then want their their ministers to be well trained in that theological yeah, perspective. So they're
0: still going to have rigorous academic standards, but they'd be pointing in the liberal theological perspective direction. Exactly. And that's interesting because, so did it start at the top then with them? Do you think, or did it start with uh, is? was it more of a response to congregational pressure? Cause I can certainly see a reality in which, yeah. you know, uh, people show up on Sunday and then Monday through Friday, they're exposed to a culture that is pushing them to become more and more liberal. And then they import that into the church and then the church leadership in an effort to, um, you know, maybe maintain their attendance or their revenue or whatever, like the, the real pressures, the real financial pressures of needing to have a healthy thriving church, especially when you're a part of like a denomination, um a close-knit denomination let's say uh is the top responding to the bottom or is the bottom following the top and maybe we don't know maybe it's that hasn't really been said but
1: yeah i mean it's probably both and in you know it depends on the context and the situation um i mean to take it out of the PCUSA and into more of our context, uh, there was a church that was a part of our denomination uh, in Texas a couple of years ago now, and um, you know the the pastor essentially got up on a Sunday and said, "We're, you know, our denomination is from this conservative." perspective we are no longer going to hold that we but you know, are going to be affirming we're going to do you know and so then of course there was some hullabaloo and they ended up you know leaving the denomination um but their reasoning really was about well we have these friends who are same-sex attracted and we you know we want to you know and so some of it, sometimes it's that it's like oh well i i want to i want to include these these friends that i have and man i understand that impulse Uh, but what, what happens then is that we do it, um, you know, we, we capitulate, uh, and, and out of a desire to love, out of a desire to remain in relationship. And, and, and those are, you know, I understand that, that impulse, uh, but then it becomes a really slippery slope and it's an interesting thing. Um, and I'm not gonna, gonna, I'm not gonna be able to cite it well at this point, um, Which, but uh, even even theologians on on the more liberal side of that, on the affirming side, which I I I don't even really like the language of affirming and non-affirming, but um, right, (laughs) um, but even even those who affirm same-sex relationships, uh, the theologians on that side openly admit that this is prohibited in Scripture. And then they just go, like, put a big asterisk. But we know things Paul didn't know, you know? And so it's not that they don't think that Scripture prohibits it. It's that they choose to ignore it, which is a whole other kind of conversation.
0: Right. Then you're in the, the territory of questioning the authority of Scripture, and the sufficiency of scripture and that sort of thing and then right that's like uh maybe a, a secular analogy would be the united states constitution um it's one thing to say hey uh, such and such is prohibited by the constitution or is, is these are rights afforded to us by the constitution but if the people seeking to violate those rights question the authority of the constitution to begin with then there's no point like th- th- what's yeah. the, what are we doing and so that's right like it's, that's a whole different conversation because then the churches, the church leadership, they're just playing tennis without the net at that point. There's nothing to govern their worldview. Yeah, And like this, honestly, man, this doesn't seem like a hard problem to solve when I think it through. And the reason is because church leadership and churches have been ministering to people who have been convicted of crimes for ages. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just been a regular part of church ministry. And we seem to be able to separate The crime from the person who committed the crime when we're ministering to people who are convicted of crimes like we that's why we go and minister to them because we see that there is intrinsic value in the person, and that they deserve to be loved in the way that Christ loves them, even if they had been commit convicted of such and such crime. But when it comes to something that culturally is like up in the air as to whether or not it's good or bad we just lose our minds. We can't seem to be able to separate the things anymore. And so I don't understand. I guess the question then becomes, why is it so difficult for churches to love people who have same-sex attraction without affirming that idea? Like, why can't we pull the two apart? Uh,
1: For the same reason that it is so difficult for people who struggle with same-sex attraction uh, to believe that, we love them and disagree with them so so it's two sides of the same coin and that reason is because sexuality is so intrinsically tied to identity right my sense of who i am so it's one thing if if someone is a thief for example to separate the act of stealing from them as an individual right they, it's easy for us to go. This is something I did. It doesn't define who I am. But we—that's not how we experience sexuality. It's so—it's so woven into the fabric of who we are. Uh, and so it becomes a lot harder to parse out. Uh, and and so then it becomes well, if if you don't. Love me as I am, and maybe that's not even the right way to say it. If if you disagree with it, this this aspect of my being, then um, then you don't love me. And and it's not just you know. And so that gets anyway. That just that gets really sticky. I am I am certainly by no means an expert in this area. I'd, let me just pause and say this like I would recommend there are some really good resources out there. Preston Sprinkle for example is an incredible um, writer and thinker in this area. He's written several books um, uh, the latest of which is called Embodied where he he wrestles with and talks really a lot through the gender identity issue. He's written a lot on homosexuality. He's got a, an a a great podcast thought called "Theology in the Raw." Um, yeah, so um, Preston Sprinkle is a really, really good resource um, if if you're looking for some things to help you kind of wrestle through and think through these things. But it's sexuality is really tied to our sense of who we are. It's really tied to our sense of our identity. Uh, and one of the things that that we in the church get wrong often is that we tend to present it as, as if folks with same-sex attraction or folks with gender dysphoria or whatever, their sexuality is broken and ours isn't. The, the truth of the matter is that we are all dealing with a broken sexuality, mm-hmm. right? Because we all deal with the effects of the fall, right? If our sexuality weren't broken, then, you know, uh, you wouldn't look on a woman with lust if you're a guy or you wouldn't, you know, sleep with multiple people or th- there wouldn't be the temptation to, to you know, uh, stray from your marriage, or you wouldn't, you know, all of this stuff, right? And like that's all the result of sin. That's all the result of the fall. We all have a broken sexuality. We all struggle with sin in this area. And if we start there, and then the question becomes not, well, what do same-sex attracted people do? But the question, and the, the more important question for all of us becomes, how do I submit my sexuality to God? How do I surrender my broken sexuality to the Lord? And then, you know, and if we if we all start there, we're
0: on we're on even ground. Yeah, I agree that sexuality is deeply woven into identity. Um, my question then, though, is should it be? Because I think that if we can conclude that sexuality is broken, um, that heterosexual people stand enormous risk with identifying with their sexuality. Also, it just doesn't seem much different to me than identifying with, like, say you're really good at baseball. It's like I'm a baseball player. That's who I am. That's my purpose for living Mm -hmm. without baseball. I can do nothing without baseball. Um, I have no reason to live and you might, it might make sense to think that way while you're excellent at it, but then what if you break your leg or what if you get older, you know, like then all of a sudden you lose all of that. Right. And that's all, all that is, is idolatry in some sense. And so I think that we can kind of do the same thing with sexuality. And I think that the reason why it becomes difficult, I, I think why, uh, people who aren't, you know, we had talked about the distinction between same sex attraction and gender ideology and that sort of thing over against the sexual brokenness of maybe like heteronormative people. Um, I think the reason why we don't have these kinds of conversations about sexuality when it comes to heterosexual people is because there's less emphasis or less push to identify that sexuality with that person. And I'd say this is, uh, I'd say both sides are guilty of this. I'd say that the people who are part of the pride movements and all of those things um, in the LGBT community seeking to identify with their sexuality and command that others affirm their identity in that they're guilty. And the church is also guilty for allowing that to take place or for allowing themselves to be pulled into that, like to, 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 and and I think that a lot of times church people don't have good motives when it comes to that kind of stuff. It just feels good to be descript to discriminate against people. Sometimes I think for people, that's what they feel for a lot of people. They just feel that way. Um, but none of that is right. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. And so it seems to me like the the way forward through something like this for the PCA, for the United Methodist Church, for non-denominational churches, um, any kind of church that's dealing with this sort of thing, the way forward has to be through a separation of sexuality and identity. Um, And, I don't know where that goes. Like, I don't know right. if that goes to devaluing sexuality so much so that we just don't talk about it anymore, which would probably be a problem, but, uh, you know, there's, there's yeah. problems everywhere. So, yeah, I
1: don't, I, I, I don't have good answers for, for a lot of this stuff. Um, <laughs> what I do know is that these are questions that we have to wrestle with. Uh, and it's only going to get messier. I mean, think of, think about like, if, um, Let's say, let's say, a same-sex couple—they're married, they've been married for 15 years, they got four kids—they come to your church and they give their lives to Jesus. What do you do then? Right? These are the—we're gonna have to wrestle with these things. We're gonna have to deal with these things. Um, and man, I—I I, I don't have answers yet. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm wrestling with it.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So let's move on to the next uh, topic here. A lot of people are talking about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and praising the move (laughs) as good for the future of free speech on a global marketplace of ideas. But is it even wise for people to desire a global marketplace of ideas? So are global issues so big that individuals stand little chance of making a dent but greater chance of having their attention pulled in and neglecting local issues, which they actually could and should solve. Um, so I, I mean, I think we, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I think it's probably a good move that he, that he took over Twitter. I think it's probably beneficial for free speech on the global public marketplace of ideas. Um, but I'm not convinced that that's even a desirable thing to have in your life. So I don't know what you think about that. Um,
1: I was. uh, I became aware of a study recently that kind of talked about this kind of thing, and the fact that our brains really aren't wired to, um, to be able to really comprehend things on a huge, massive scale like that. So, like when we when we hear about genocide and thousands and thousands of people dying, you know, in something like that, like. We really can't process that. Um, And so then we become overwhelmed by it. And so I'm not going to do a good job of representing this, but because I don't have the statistics in front of me or whatever. But the, the thing was that like, because we're, so inundated with information, uh, you know, the, this kind of, like you said, global marketplace of ideas, uh, then, then we, uh, like, it's, uh, it's kind of like, it's a sensory overload kind of thing almost, where, we, where there comes a point at which we just kind of can't deal with it anymore, and then we freeze. And so rather than, like you said, dealing with issues on our local level, we just become overwhelmed and, like, don't do anything because it's like, I, I, who am I in the face of all of this? And, uh, and, and global issues. And let's, let's bring it back to the church because this is a, this is a, you know, podcast for church leaders, right? Um, the, the massive issues facing the church, you know, L- LGBTQ, um, you know, this seemingly rising tide of secularism, the, you know, um, what, what appears to be uh, so, you know, a rising resistance against traditional Orthodox Christian belief, you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, global change happens at a local level. And so, you um, Is there a value to being aware of what's going on in other places in the world? Absolutely. Um, But we also need to recognize that there's a point at which like it becomes too much and then I lose sight of of what I can do.
0: Yeah, the the closest thing I've gotten to a conclusion on this issue is just this simple statement of, you shouldn't mobilize until you know the truth about something. So, for instance, um, you think about, like, uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, for instance. Like, if a church was going to mobilize, or if a pastor felt led to mobilize his congregation to support one side or the other, um, the answer is you should not do that until a, you know, the truth about what's going on and b) your congregation knows the truth about what's going on. Mobilization without good purchase on what's true is probably a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I know it makes people feel like, well, we're just not doing anything. We're being lazy or we're not stepping up. We're not rising to meet the moment. Um, But these things are complicated, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's not even like you said in the church context, like all these issues that are facing the church, It's still, even in those, even in that context, it's a bad idea to collectively take action until first you have a good understanding of what's actually happening. You wouldn't want a doctor to perform surgery on you. Unless they kind of had an idea of what was wrong. Like they knew what they were going to do. They knew that there was a diagnosis, you know, like who would want to go under the knife without a diagnosis? It's like, okay, well, we're going to perform surgery on you and try to figure out what's wrong. I mean, I suppose there might be like edge cases cases where that kind of thing happens, but you're not going to submit to that kind of action, that kind of uh, major undertaking, unless you have information first, like good information. Um, and so I don't see why it should be any different when it comes to spiritual issues and these kinds of things, like mobilization without understanding the truth is probably a a bad idea.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Jesus said, you know, if a man wants to build a tower, he must first sit down and count the cost, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, uh, so let's say you want to be a church that is equipped to respond quickly should you know, when when global things happen. You know, you want... Well, then you need to sit down and account for, okay, what does that look like for us as a church to be prepared to do that? And and that's a, you know, that's a, that's a whole other set of issues in addition to responding to the thing. Like, being prepared to respond in the first place. So, like, you know, let's say, you know, you want to be able to help people in Ukraine who are being um, displaced by the war, right? Well, what does it look like for you as a church to be equipped to do that in the first place and then to do it quickly? And who would you need to be connected to in, you know, globally? Because, and I'm getting in the weeds on this, but just all of that to say that there are, there are questions that we should be asking now. So, like, if you're... Going back to the Ukraine thing, let's say you felt convicted and you felt compelled to do something about that. Well, maybe your church isn't, isn't equipped to do that for this moment, but maybe that's the voice of God saying, hey, you need to be ready should something like this happen again. And so you go, okay, so now what does it look like? We, we, we can't meet this need currently, but I, I believe God's calling us to meet needs like this moving forward, so what do we need to do to get ready for it?
0: Yeah. And then there are certain things that you should do as a Christian, whether or not you're doing them on the right or wrong side of the conflict. So for instance, if you're, say you have like a world war and you have a side of the conflict, that's like clearly the, the axis power, right? Like just the the global community has condemned this power as being wrongheaded, malevolent, uh, having undesirable goals, et cetera. Well, as a Christian, you should still take in refugees from that side and help them if they need help, if they are in need or if they're isolated, if they're struggling, you know, like that, that doesn't free you of your mandate to take care of the least of these and to, and to care for people, you know, even if they are ideologically possessed. And so I think, yeah, that's a good thing. I think that's a good point to make that you've made there is that mobilization is mobilization out of Christian principle can be okay even if you don't understand the the broader problem it's just like you know maybe i don't understand the broader problem but i know that this person needs help and so it doesn't matter how they connect to the broader problem i got to help them now and i'm doing that out of christian duty um you know like uh uh, i think that christians helped a lot during the like the black plague Mm -hmm. and situations like that. they would go and minister to people and help people who other people didn't want to go near because they didn't want to catch the black plague and die um, and there's probably other diseases and illnesses where this kind of thing was modeled. Um, it was less important to figure out where the disease came from and how it got here and like who's responsible and all of that, that, that was less important than actually meeting the moment at the ground level yeah. and ministering to the people in need. And so I think that you can make an impact as a Christian, uh, a positive kingdom impact, even if you don't have a great philosophical knowledge of the broader movements that are happening, that are causing the need that's in front of you.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's applicable to all the things that we've talked about so far. I mean, even if you go back to the, the issue of same sex attracted people or gender dysphoria and LGBTQ community, all that, like, uh, you don't have to know all the theological ins and outs and, and have a a ready answer for every question, uh, to love your neighbor who's same-sex attracted well right and and so we start there like we we let you know um let love and let let christian um you know um ethics right guide how that we interact with with the people around us and 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 do that well respond in a christ-like manner uh and and then we can figure out some of those other things as, as we are, um, as we journey through it, right. As we, as we,
0: as we go about trying to live in this world. So talking, so I think that helps people who maybe have less aspiration to, um, play in the arena of ideas and try to figure out why things are happening and write books and be theologians and all there, all the rest. Um, but addressing, because addressing the people who maybe are called to that, because I think we need people like that too. We need people in the high office, let's say, um, or the academic office is probably a better way of putting it. Um, what is the difference between the university and the church? And should there be a difference? This is something I've thought about for a while because the university kind of come up, came up out of the church. Uh Um, but, I think most of those universities would not readily uh, attach themselves to the church today. Right. And I think that might be a problem because I think that the church in some sense needs to be a sense-making apparatus because if we believe what we believe, then we believe that we have the book that makes everything else <laughs> make sense. <laughs> yeah. And so what what is your sense about the way the university and the church plays together and should should it be different than it is right now was it better back when it started and there was more of a close relationship between the two should churches become like local campuses of universities in the way that they conduct themselves at the level of trying to make sense of ideas
1: oh man tentatively i'll say yes that churches should be campuses right uh historically education had a much more of a mentorship kind of look to it uh and i I think that's a a a really good model uh especially in terms of learning the practical aspects of ministry now if if, uh if we're going to give a robust theological education there's some requirements there that maybe some churches aren't aren't ready to meet um now, that doesn't mean that uni- universities, as they're traditionally set up, can't do a good job and won't continue to be viable. I think that they will. Uh, I, I don't know that—well, uh, yeah. I mean, public universities, you know, state-sponsored universities or uh, private institutions that aren't Christian, I mean, they're never going to be partners with the mm-hmm. church. Uh, that's just not the way that's going to going to look or work. Um but the church should be concerned with and actively engaged with
0: um with academia. I th- yeah. It's interesting to me that the universities have gone from and I'm not super well read on their role uh at the beginning when, when they were coming up out of the church. Um But it looks to me today like they've gone from possibly informing people on a Christian worldview and therefore inculcating that Mm -hmm. that religious worldview in those people to inculcating a different religious worldview into their students. Like they didn't just go from from that to nothing. It seems like they've gone from that to like they're building proselytes of a different persuasion. And it's weird to me that that just happened. Like it's, it, it makes me think that the vehicle of the university has something indispensable in it that people on the outside of the faith saw that indispensable thing. And they, they said, okay, well, we need to use that to preach what we believe. Um, and like I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just an <laughs> observation in a sense of like,
1: yeah, well, you know, I mean, um, look there is something in all of us, right, that resists truth. Uh, our, our fallen nature, our sin nature, whatever, you know, um, and we have to sub- submit and surrender to it. Uh, and then, of course, the, like the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that, ac- help, that accomplishes that in us. I mean, there's all of those kinds of things. But left to our own devices, we don't naturally move toward God. Right, that's that's no less true of of universities and academic institutions than it is of each individual, and so so what we've seen, you know, is like when, for example, universities uh, are established that aren't governed by the church. Well, then it would we shouldn't be surprised when they drift away from, you know, Christian thought or. Uh, you know, and man, there's so much historically that we could get into. I mean, when you get into the Enlightenment, you know, and uh, this kind of um, separating things, you know, like empirical evidence from, you know, from what that, you know, from really what gets what gets categorized as myth, right? What, unfortunately, then Christian thought gets slid over into the myth category. And once you once you identify and once you label something as myth, well, then that changes the way that people engage with it. It changes the way that people think about it. And change you know, and so then so so enlightenment thinking allowed called for this kind of separation between those two things. Um and so then, well if I can't prove God exists empirically, right? If I can't do it in a lab and reproduce it in a lab, uh, never mind the fact that for all of us, right, we're, there's this kind of hardwired thing where we like we know that there's something beyond here. There's some, there's something we don't see. There's something you know, um, but then the, but then there's this drive to go. Okay, if I can't prove it in a lab, then
0: then it's it's not valid, uh, and. And, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it, and particularly with the enlightenment. Um, because I think you can make the case that the enlightenment, um, sprung from the substrate of Christianity and its desire to get to truth. Yeah. Like it's so, so it's almost like, so you have this, uh, this worldview that has a puts a top priority on truth. And as a consequence, as a product of that, you get the enlightenment, you get empiricism, you Mm -hmm. get this idea of, okay, I'm going to try to, I'm going to come up with a method that eliminates as much subjective bias as possible, because that will get me to the truth. And while you do that, you, you, I don't know, accidentally, probably not accidentally, you slide, you slide the substrate, the Christianity over into the myth category. And then you find out too late that, your method that is designed to eliminate subjective bias and get you to the truth is not enough to fill in the hole that's left that, yeah. that was covering the transcendent and the things that which, which can't be apprehended through your new method. And so then maybe that's where the other dogmas come back in. Um, I would say that the the liberal dogmas and the, the other uh, religious worldviews that are characteristic of far left university types, right now like these these have slid back in to fill in something that was left behind and maybe that's how it happened something like that um i'm not i'm not really sure but i think that i think we would do well to not let go of the universities to not oh yeah
1: for sure yeah no i mean it's like anything else if we if we disengage from public arena then we just acquiesce we go okay you know we've been we're going to abandon that well it's not it's not the institution that's the, the problem that you know like it's we're abandoning the people right we're not it's not you know and I, I don't think we we ever I don't I don't think I think we often forget that part of it yeah. right it's like uh if every Christian, if we go, okay, we're just going to abandon the universities. We're just we got, we're going to pull out. It's it's too you know to this or to that or well then it's like I said, it's not just the institution that we're we're abandoning. It's the people that are there that God loves and that yeah. that, that He wants to send us as as salt and light into those places. Um, does that require us to? have a good a really solid grasp on what we believe and why we believe it so that we can identify uh the 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 points of disagreement and and the the fallacies in you know the the opposing argument that might be presented to us and all yeah absolutely it requires us to to know what we believe and why we believe it um but that's that's certainly preferable to abandoning the whole thing
0: yeah and that's an important point about the people are what matter here and it goes back to what we said about uh authority like the viewed authority of scripture and the viewed authority of the constitution um the i would say probably i'm not gonna i'm actually not going to put scripture alongside the constitution um in this regard because i believe that scripture has authority whether we believe it does or not yeah Um, but when you take something, an institution like the university or a document like the constitution, if you, if you abandon the people, if you say, well, I don't need to help these people or I don't need to talk to these people. I don't need to engage with these people because all I need to do is save the institution. All I need to do is work for the institution. Well, the institution is the people. Yeah. Like, you know, if the people, if the people are gone or the people aren't there, the people are all diametrically opposed to the institution, then the institution's not going to survive. You can't just save it from the top. You have to address the people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's that's an important point. Um, Continuing with this idea of sense-making apparatus, uh, it seems to be the case that people look at uh, media networks, things that their information they're able to consume at home. Um, when it comes to shaping their understanding of the things that are happening around them in the world right now, um, and I've thought about this a lot. Like, why do they do this? For one, is it simply a matter of convenience? Is it just because it's it's being shot into their living room? I think that's less, pro- probably less, the case now. You might have been able to make that case twenty years ago, but since live streaming and all that stuff has been so democratized now, I think that they could choose to watch. Christian resources, or they could choose to watch church sermons, et cetera. And one of, I'm trying to speculate as to why that doesn't happen more often. And one of the reasons I kind of landed on was that these platforms, these media networks tend to bring in people who are very expert in narrow fields. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that the church does that as much. And so I'm not saying that people who are expert in narrow fields are intrinsically better than generalists. I don't think that they are. I think that there are certain things, um, like response to a pandemic, uh, would be better to have a generalist because if you have someone who's only an expert in one narrow field of inquiry, they might be trying to solve one narrow problem and create 15 other problems of equal uh, danger, let's say. Uh, So you need generalists. And my question then is, how do we encourage people to look to first of all, should they look to the weekend services as the place where they take in information that shapes the way that they see the things around them? And if they should, would bringing in experts, would churches bringing in experts help that process along?
1: Uh, it depends on, it depends on what, what we're trying to accomplish. I mean, so the, the, the first answer is yes, uh, your congregation should see the, what is being taught in the weekend services as being, um, well, as as helping to form and shape their worldview. Uh, in terms of should we bring in experts, it depends. Um, do do i need to do we need to bring in an expert on climate change to understand that we've been called to be good stewards of the earth to, tend to no i mm. don't think so right um, should we bring in an expert going back to the beginning of our conversation right should we bring in an expert about Um, issues of sexuality and gender identity and that kind of thing to help shape and form our people and help them to understand the, 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 you know, the intricacies of, of that issue. Um, now that is much more, I think maybe, uh, necessary and needed thing. I don't know for, for me, I don't know that I would do that on a weekend, uh, that's something that I would start probably with training with your staff and then maybe some key leaders and that kind of thing. Like, here's how we as a church are going to handle these issues. Here's what here's what shapes our understanding. Uh, and then maybe from that, like depending on your congregation, if there's a, a large enough need, then yeah, maybe you do bring in somebody and 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 do a panel on your weekend service or have them present, you know, um, a talk on the weekend. Uh, but, but my firm conviction is that the weekend services really are more for, um, uh, for shaping our, uh, our understanding of who God is. Um, and, um, and really probably dealing with more broad issues of, you know, um, practical like day-to-day stuff that most people are facing, which the sexuality issue is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, but I don't know that we need uh, or should have experts like in every political thing or, you know, like I said, climate change or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't know that that's really.
0: Yeah. I mean, it comes back to um, the principle behind what the purpose of the weekend service is. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in resisting it becoming more like a forum Mm -hmm. um, because I mean I I'm definitely an ideas guy and so the idea of the thought of a forum is exciting to me but then I'm ne- I'm never okay with losing the purpose of the weekend service being to glorify and honor God. Yeah,
1: we want to exalt the risen Christ. We want to we want people to to worship and we want to renew the covenant and remember the gospel, to remember that Jesus has died for us and what that means for us. And those are the things that I think that we have to continue to focus on and that we can serve us. And then And then our understanding of how that shapes the way that we view the world, right? And so we, to me, we have to always come back to that. You've got to always come back to the cross and then... then when you when it becomes questions of sexuality and that well, how does what does the cross say in regard to mm-hmm. that? How does my understanding of what Christ has done for me then shape how I see people uh, of same sex attraction? If if God has given Himself, you know, it's that kind of we. It's got to be the gospel. If we lose that in in favor of you know a, an ideas kind of forum, well, I think we lose
0: yeah it, it the the longest stand, it seems to me like the longest standing churches and the churches that are most resistant to the the ebb and flow of the cultural tide are the ones that rigorously hold to um, liturgical worship. And not I'm not trying to um, acclaim the merits of liturgy over against a non- liturgical worship, but I'm just saying that the ones who keep that in focus, the whole time Mm -hmm. seem to be the ones that last the longest and that are most resistant to cultural change. And it's weird because they're not really even engaging at the cultural level. They're just worshiping God and they're doing it according to standards, which have been set long ago. um, And that's what they're doing. And they're, they're, they're doing that zealously. And I think that they're, they have an impact on shaping the people who are, are, are a part of that. And so yeah, there's definitely wisdom to keeping it about Jesus um, on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds silly to say that, but um, some I think there are probably people who need to hear that. Okay, so this could be the maybe the last one. This is more of like a uh, nuts and bolts of church ministry uh, type of question. <laughs> um, I've noticed how medium to large size churches tend to have auxiliary ministries, which make efforts to preach sermons do you think that this is a good idea or do you think that the other ministries should be funneling people into the weekend sermon? Um, So I don't know. I'm trying to think of examples to this. Like say you have uh, a youth service, you have a young adult service, you have like these different services aimed at different demographics and they're kind of doing the same thing that the weekend is doing. Um, Is it a better idea to use those arenas to try to steer people towards the weekend? Or is it, is there danger in saturating the market? That kind of thing? Uh, I don't see a danger in saturating the
1: market. I mean, uh, I think each of those things is going to um, appeal to and engage a different part of. Now, do we want all of those things to feed into and contribute to the life of the body and the overall, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't, I don't know that there's ever a danger of hearing too much of God's word. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and then, and and I think that there's a biblical precedent for that. I mean, if you look at the Book of Acts, you know, they were gathering in homes and in you know, and, and, and in in synagogues and like. Seems to me that there was there were opportunities every day for them to gather in some place or another to hear God's word uh, and to engage with God's word and to discuss it and to pray with one another and so, so I don't uh, I don't I don't know that there's a problem with you know with those kinds of things happening. Uh, I do think that there is that the challenge that that brings up though, is then to make sure that we're all on the same page, that there's congruence, that there's unity among those things, you know, that what's being taught here is uh, in agreement with, you know, the same, what's being taught on the weekend, that, that doctrinally and ideologically and theologically, you know, that we're a li- that we're in alignment and that, uh, and that we're moving toward the same, um, dr- in the same direction. You, you know, you don't want any of, you don't want those, you know, you don't want a, a rogue faction, right? Mm-hmm. And and not that we're trying to control everybody, but there needs to be agreement. Um, you know, pr- scripture says, "How can two walk together except if they're going in the same direction?" Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that's the thing there. And so there's it requires some more of us from a leadership standpoint. But man, um, just I know from from my own experience in you know when I was a kid in youth group, like. They were addressing things that i needed to hear that that my pastor really probably wasn't going to address on on a weekend not that i didn't get things from the weekend right there were things that i was learning and growing in but but there were those specific things to that time of life that my youth group was addressing that that weren't addressed on the weekend typically Uh, and so and that's no different no matter what stage of life you're in um, i mean if a pastor on the weekend is preaching to people from you know 13 to you know to 90 uh there's a whole gamut of experience and things that are happening there that the pastor's not going to be able to address in a typical message and so um i kind of see it as again like that that weekend service helps all it should be the thing that that calls us back to focus on Christ. And then we take those general kind of overarching things that the pastor has talked about on the weekend and then throughout the week in those other opportunities to gather, we get down into the you know the like how does this how does this inform my
0: individual experience or my particular situation. So, um some of the smaller churches that I've worked with, um, when the idea was proposed of doing like a second service or another ministry somewhere like during the week that kind of looked the same as like a a Uh Sunday service, the fear was always, um, dividing the congregation. Yeah. And so maybe speak to those leaders from your perspective of being a part of an organization that does those different things and assuage the fear of dividing the congregation and maybe talk a little bit about, um, how organizationally, how you can ensure that you don't end up with those kind of misalignments. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you do end up with those misalignments, do you solve them through something like a council? You know, I think about like the, the various councils throughout church history, those seem to be like a response to misalignments. Like, okay, we have, we have, something we need to figure out here. We need to establish what it is that we believe, what it is, how it is we're going to interpret this passage, et cetera. So we're going to have a council and then we're going to do it that way. So is that the way that churches should be doing it now? Whenever they have internal, uh, you know, not that they're going to publish their council and, you know, and it's going to become part of the the creeds, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) uh, so that's a multi-part question. Let me kind of summarize it again. Um, speak to the people who have the fear of starting off their, their, their first auxiliary ministry and their fear of dividing the congregation, speak to them and then speak to, um, speak, yeah, speak to them from a perspective of, of a pastor who's already part of an organization that does that and why you don't maybe have to be afraid of that. And then, uh, speak to this, this fear of misalignment and doctrine.
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of things. I mean, number one, you might divide the congregation. It could happen. Why are you afraid of that? Like, what is it? What is it that you think you lose if you do that, right? Um, what do you lose? I, I don't. I don't know that I see. You know, like, if if. So yeah, so let's say you got fifty people in your Sunday service, and you split. Uh, and have a meeting on a different night that that looks different than your Sunday morning, or, you know, um, and 25 of your people go there. But then, both of those worship experiences, both of those opportunities to gather, begin to grow. Well, you've actually, from a kingdom standpoint, you're being more effective than you would if you had allowed the fear of, oh no, our Sunday service is going to diminish to be the thing that that governed you. Uh, so there's that aspect. Now, then you have leadership questions to answer. So if if the same leader is going to be doing both gatherings, well, that's, that's pretty safe, right? I mean, you know, um, if it's going to be two different leaders, so if your primary communicator on Sunday is not your primary communicator at this auxiliary thing, well, then you just have to make sure that you're maintaining alignment. Those leaders need to be in... Uh, in communication with each other, in relationship with each other. I mean, maybe even going so far as to say, okay, here are the things, this is the series we're going to teach over the next six weeks. Um, It's going to look a little different in this gathering than it does in the Sunday gathering, but but these are the things that we're wanting to communicate so that we can keep our people in, in, in alignment, and there's some unity across those things. The other thing is to ask yourself, what is it that God's calling us to do? I mean, maybe He's calling you, you know, not just to start an auxiliary ministry, but eventually to plant another church. And so, if if that's the case, well, you know, celebrate that and release them with you know with joy. And like, I, it's often interesting to me that we will celebrate like if we have somebody in our in our congregation who feels called to go and be a missionary uh, in a foreign country. Man, we send those folks out with like, we we pray over them, we commission them. We're excited. We send but let's, if there's somebody that feels, you know, called to go plant a church 30 miles down the road, well then we get nervous all of a sudden, like, well, wait a minute. That's not too far for some of our people to drive. I don't know if we want to do that. Well, why is that calling any less valid now? If there, if there's a uh, rebellion there, if, if, if they're going, like, we're going to go five blocks away and plant a church because we don't like the way you're doing things here, well, that's a whole other issue than, hey, there's a city 20 miles from us that, that, needs, that we feel God is calling us to go. You know, we should celebrate that in the same way that we would, um, you know, a, a missionary going to a foreign country, or even you know, to bring it a little more locally, like if we're if it is an auxiliary ministry, let's say you have a like well, for us we have a university here in our our town, right? So let's say that we put a you know something on campus that's meeting on a different night, and it begins to grow and it begins to thrive, and it's like um, in some ways it begins to function almost as its own church. Well. Should we feel threatened by that, or should we celebrate that? Um, you know, and I, I tend to think that we should celebrate that. Now, that that again, that requires us to to maintain some alignment and some relationship and some oversight and all the. That, but that's a that's a question of is the right leader in place? Not you know. Um, not that it should be a threat to the
0: weekend. I don't know. Yeah, I'm no. rambling at this point. No, I agree completely. I think it's a net positive, and any kind of advancement for the kingdom is something that we should, as a church, embrace and support and encourage. And, um, you know, and I think that we I think should... any move that we make out of fear, whether it's, you know, well, any
1: move that we make out of fear is not the move that we should be making.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good place to wrap this up. Uh, Todd, thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you guys for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.